Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you and glorify you. That our faith in Jesus is rooted in history and rooted in reality. That just like has been said in every generation that Jesus was born of a virgin and that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, buried and rose from the dead. That, Lord, even though there are those people who would suggest that our faith has more to do with mystery and philosophy, Lord, we know that Jesus came to a real planet and he died on a real cross and he really rose from the dead so that we could experience forgiveness and hope and life. And so, Father, I pray for that person who has come here this morning and they need to be rooted in history and they need to be rooted in reality and they need to be rooted in the truth. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 18, verse 28, it says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the sayings of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. For this cause I came into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you on the Passover day. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Christianity is deeply rooted, not simply in reality, but in history. As a matter of fact, I 
was reminded of a papyri fragment that was found in 1920 by a man named Bernard Greenfield. He was digging in the northern part of Egypt and they found some Roman era tombs that dated from the first century and the second century. And among the fragments, there was the body of a child. And next to the child's head were, were papyri fragments that were wrapped around her skull that served as a gentle pillow. And among these small fragments, they were picked up at, at libraries around the world. There are large collections of these small shards of papyri. This one is two and a half inches by three and a half inches. And it's housed in the John Rylands Library at Manchester, England. Until 1934, when a fellow at St. John's College at Oxford, C.H. Roberts, began sorting through them. And he picked up this fragment, and immediately he recognized a few of the Greek lines on the recto. The recto is the front, and the verso is on the back. And he noticed that it contained parts of John's Gospel, chapter 18. Verses 31 through 33 on one side. Verses 37 and 38 on the other side. And you have to understand that this gospel that we're reading this morning was written by the Apostle John and it was circulating in Ephesus in Turkey. And it was read and repeated and read and repeated till it made its way from Turkey through Palestine all the way to North Africa. And as you can imagine, it was read and repeated and read and repeated until, like your own Bibles, it began to fall apart and it found itself in a little girl's grave. But what's interesting about this particular papyri fragment is if you're a nerd like I am and you love paleographic script, Scholars discovered that the Greek papyri manuscript ledger, this alphabetic system dates to about 117 A.D. to 131 A.D. during the time of, of the emperor Hadrian. Now I want you to think this through. This means that this particular fragment can be linked within a few generations to the actual life and the actual death and the actual crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Now again, it's going to be important because we're going to come back to it, but I want you to make either a note or an asterisk next to verse 31 through 33 and next to verses 37 and 38, understanding that if every Bible was destroyed in the world, that these particular fragments would tell us something about a trial. It's the transcripts of a trial from long ago. And so, in John chapter 18, we move from the arrest of Jesus in verses 1 through 14 to the denial of Jesus in verses 15 through 27. Now we look at the accusation in verses 28 through 32, and then the examination by Pontius Pilate. Look again at the accusation in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. 
John's gospel omits the formal trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Remember, he goes from Annas to Caiaphas, from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. And the trial uh, before Caiaphas is recorded in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 58 through chapter 27, verse 2. And so after the Jewish Sanhedrin tries Jesus, they send him to Pilate. The Latin word praetorium is used twice in verse 28. The word comes from a Latin word praetor, which was a high administrator in the Roman government. As a matter of fact, praetorium then became a word that was used to describe the palace or the residence of the governor. Even in Colorado, when we go to Denver, you can see the governor's mansion. And the governor's mansion in the first century was located in Caesarea by the sea. It was built by Herod the Great. But when the governor would travel to Jerusalem, there was a palatial residence next to the Antonine Fortress, which was built over the ruins of a Hasmonean palace. And this is where they bring him. And look what it says. And it was early morning. It's a very technical word. That translated early morning, it's the one Greek word, proi, which was the third watch of the Roman night. And so this means it's between 3 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock in the morning. Now, I don't know about you, but 3, 4, 5, and 6 o'clock in the morning is no time to go knocking on the governor's mansion. Now, those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, you'll remember that Pontius Pilate was not just the governor of Judea, but he was also the husband of a woman named Claudia. Claudia was the granddaughter of Augustus. Augustus was the emperor of the world, and Augustus's daughter's daughter was married to Pontius Pilate. All of this is going to be important as the study unfolds. Again, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll remember that there was a time during the night when Claudia has a dream and she slips Pontius Pilate a note warning him that in her dream that this man was a righteous man and an innocent man and be careful what you do to this man. And then it says, but they refused to go into the praetorium. Look what it says, lest they should be defiled. Now remember, if you're an observant Jew, the religious leaders are unwilling to go into the praetorium, which is the Gentile residence, for fear that they would be defiled. And make no mistake about it, it wasn't touching a Gentile that they feared. It wasn't even going into his residence that they feared. The observant Jews in the first century believed that Gentiles, and particularly Romans, if they had a stillborn or a newborn baby that didn't survive through the night, that the Romans would literally take their dead children and instead of burying them, flush them down the toilet or put them in to the disposal system. And so if you were an observant Jew, the thing that would clearly defile you was to come in contact with a dead body. As a matter of fact, 
The Jewish leaders have already cleansed their homes of leaven. They've already prepared the Passover lamb. They've performed the necessary rituals to ensure ritual cleanness. Don't you find this interesting? That they are committed to religious observances. They're committed to the ritual of removing the leaven, but they refuse to remove the leaven from their own heart. They're willing to manipulate the legal system and Condemn an innocent man. And all the while, not afraid or ashamed of their own defiled heart. The religious leaders would be required to kill the Passover lamb that that very afternoon. And then keep the feast immediately when the sun went down. And make no mistake about it. The real Passover lamb will be killed that afternoon. Now, how do the religious leaders reconcile this? How do they reconcile the keeping of ritual observances and all the while be willing to compromise their deeply held convictions? It's because they really don't understand what's happening. That the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is in their very midst. And look what it says in verse 29. Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? These are the transcripts. And every Roman trial would begin with the judge ordering a reading of the accusation. And you'll note it says that Pilate went out to them, and the governor had learned from bitter experience the strict observance of the religious rules and regulations from the religious leaders, and he wasn't going to play that game. And in John's Gospel, we see Pilate going in and out. John Phillips gives a, a quick outline. I want to give it to you. He's on the outside in verses 28 through 32 to hear the Jews uh, demand and to ratify the death sentence. So he goes outside and then he goes inside in verses 33 through 38 to hear Christ's testimony concerning his kingship. And then at the end of verse 38 to verse 40, he goes back outside again to make his declaration of Jesus's innocence and to offer them the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, and then he go out inside again in chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, for the scourging and mockery of Jesus. And then they go outside again in chapter 19, verses 4 through 7, in the second declaration of Christ's innocence, when he says in Latin, ecce homo, which is translated, behold the man. And then he goes back inside in chapter 19, verses 8 through 11, to examine Jesus about the frightening accusation of the Jews. The most frightening accusation of all, that he's the son of God. And then he goes back outside again in chapter 19, verses 12 through 16 for this final capitulation before the Jews and the shameful miscarriage of justice. Now, he makes the statement and Luke's gospel lists three trumped up charges that are given. In Luke chapter 23, verse 2, it says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So in Luke's gospel, number one, he's charged with 
leading the nation astray. Number two, to opposing paying tribute to Caesar. And number three, claiming to be the Messiah and the king. And remember when he stood before the Sanhedrin, remember the high priest says to Jesus, are you the Messiah? Now, one of two things is true. Is it a crime to be the Messiah? Not if you really are the Messiah. If you're a false Messiah, if you're a false prophet, it makes perfect sense that you would lie about such a thing. But Jesus really is the Messiah, and he admits as much. And the priest tears his garment, and he accuses him of blasphemy. And you know what the blasphemy is? That he, being a man, puts himself on a par with God, that he is in fact God. But the high priest and the rest of the religious leaders know that they can't march Jesus in front of the Roman procurator and say, here's the charges. This man claims to be a God. Because Pontius Pilate would go, so does my father-in-law. Yeah, it wouldn't have been unusual for Romans to attest to the deity of Augustus or the deity of Tiberius and later to the deity of Caligula, the monster. And so in verse 30, it says, they answered him and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him up to you. And by the way, you don't talk this way to a Roman procurator. Can you imagine going to court? being an attorney, and the judge says, you tell me what the charges are. Hey, we wouldn't have brought him to your court, Your Honor, unless he was a real full-on criminal. See, you're laughing because you know what judge would hear such a thing. Are you playing games with me? Are you actually going to insult me and this court and not have a charge? As a matter of fact, when they called Jesus an evildoer, the old King James translates that male factor from two Latin words. In Greek, it's, and it sounds really disgusting in the Greek language, kakopoios. Yeah, kako is evil. And poyos is doer. It's the idea of a parent who is a, a, a person who is currently involved in evil. In other words, this is a word that you would use to describe not just a criminal, but a wicked criminal. Let me give you an example. In our culture and society, if a person's accused of a crime, they're called a suspect. Now, what does a suspect do? It leaves you with the impression that it still retains the value of you are innocent until proven guilty. But if you've ever worked with law enforcement officers and they bring a person to you and they say, this is the perp. Or this is the bad guy. All bets are off. There's no presumption of innocence here. Particularly if they bring a rap sheet out. And the person has been tried and convicted of wickedness over and over again. But this is a slander. As a matter of fact, 
Peter describes Jesus as he went about doing good in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is over and over again characterized as being pure and innocent and without fault. This is the man who healed the sick and the blind and the deaf, the leper. This is the person who cast out evil spirits. This is the person who fed the multitudes. This is the person who raised the dead and taught the truth. And the religious leaders have put him under close scrutiny. They've looked for flaws. And they found none. But even then, they didn't understand that they were involved in an ancient ritual where the high priest would examine the Passover lamb to make sure that it was healthy and disease-free without spot and without blemish. As a matter of fact, Jesus is so pure and so innocent that they have to hire someone to lie about the Savior. And the religious leaders genuinely seem to be put off that the procurator would actually be so bold as to ask for charges. Evidently, they think that he's, he's just going to take their word for it that he's guilty or that he's not who he says he is. But that's the world in which you live. That's the world in which you live, because if you turn on the radio, you turn on the TV and you open books, this world takes it for granted that the Bible's not true and that Jesus is not who he says he is. One of the reasons why I showed you the papyri fragment is I'm trying to get you to understand something, that your faith isn't just a superstitious, metaphysical something that makes you feel good about your circumstances, but the reality of Jesus' life and death, His burial and His resurrection is rooted and grounded in history. And the world wants you to take their word for it that He's a liar and that He isn't who He says that He is. Disgusted, Pilate says in verse 31, you take him and judge him according to your law. Oh, you want to hold court? You want to already just go ahead and make a decision? Then you do it on your terms. Therefore, the Jews said to him, well, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Notice that the charges still aren't made, but whatever it's done, whatever he's done, whatever they think that he's done, that he deserves to die. As a matter of fact, they want to accuse him of a capital crime. Josephus, the historian who writes after the fall of the destruction of the temple after 70 A.D., suggests that the law changed in A.D. 6 when Judea became a Roman province. And it was when Judea becomes a Roman province and that the Rome takes over the actual care and control of the province that they retained for themselves the right to capital punishment. The Talmud, which was written in Babylon after the destruction of the, of the temple, the Talmud gives a date of about 40 years after the destruction of the temple. This particular law was enacted, which would have put it right around... 30 to 36 A.D., we know that the Jews would sometimes take the law into their own hands because later on in the book of Acts, we see that they're going to take Stephen and they will stone him. 
but Jesus must not be stoned. As a matter of fact, in verse 32, John gives us the reason. He says that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. He spoke about it in John chapter 3, verse 14, in John chapter 8, verse 28, in John chapter 12, verse 32. Over and over and over again, he's told his disciples, I'm going to be taken to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I am going to be killed. I'm going to come back to life. Remember, Jesus said that he would be lifted up. The Bible clearly predicted that Jesus would bear the curse of the law, that he would become a curse for us and make no mistake about it. That's exactly what the high priest wanted. It wasn't good enough that Jesus simply be stoned. It was the religious leaders' conviction that Jesus must be made to appear as a curse so that no lingering doubts concerning his identity, no lingering doubts concerning his ministry, that he must hang on a tree. And this is interesting because the religious leaders' ignorance of the scriptures and their opposition in trying to prove that Jesus is a false prophet only reinforces the reality that he's a true prophet of God. In Psalm 22, 16, it's, uh, it, it gives the method whereby he would die. And in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, the ancient prophet talked about the Messiah and that you would see the piercings in his hands. You would look on him whom you have pierced. And so it goes from the accusation to the examination. Look in verse 33. It says, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And by the way, in all four Gospels, when it begins the examination of Pilate's questions to, to Jesus in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in John, it begins here. Are you the king of the Jews? And the emphasis in each and every gospel is you. Pilate seems surprised by the charge. And I suspect that the reason why he seems surprised by the charge Jesus doesn't look like a king. Those of you who have been following along in the New Testament and you've been reading the Gospel of John, you'll remember that on the night that he was betrayed, they had the Last Supper. You'll remember that they go through the Kidron Valley. They go into the garden area where he begins to pray and he sweats great drops of blood. You'll remember that the temple police, along with the, with the Roman soldiers, they come, they bind him, they take him. You remember the story, how they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I'm Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, and everyone is blown down into the dirt. They wipe themselves off. They get up out of the dirt. Jesus freely surrenders himself. He goes to the Jewish officials. 
where he is slapped upside of his head and he's beaten with rods and they beat him. And I don't know, ladies, if you've ever had to stay up all night just simply crying and you wake up the next morning with no makeup and you might say something to do. This isn't, this isn't how I normally look. He doesn't look like a king. He isn't dressed like a king. And Pilate knew what kings looked like. His wife was married to the daughter of the emperor. He has been around the rich and the famous. And Jesus doesn't act like a noble, and he doesn't act like a religious fanatic, and he doesn't act like a patriotic zealot. If this man were a king, he certainly doesn't look like any king Pilate's ever seen before. And in verse 34, Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Jesus is in effect saying, who told you that? Is this an idea that you came up with all on your own? Or did somebody else put that thought in your head? Do you understand what's happening? The accuser has now become the accused. It's clear what Jesus is doing. Clearly, the Lord Jesus wants Pilate to ponder the implications of the charge and answer his own question. Is Jesus the king after all? Pilate's no idiot. You may think that he's weak, and you may think that he's a weasel, and you would be right. But he's not stupid. He clearly would have had access to the intelligence reports and the field evaluations, the parade that took place earlier with thousands of people shouting Hosanna as this rabble-rousing uh, Galilean peasant has rode into town on a donkey. Make no mistake about it. The reports of the miracles, the reports of the healings, the reports of the resurrections from the dead must have made their way into the governor's palace because they certainly did into Herod's palace. What do you think? Who put this thought in your mind? And in fact, what does that mean? What does it mean to be the king of the Jews? Is that threat, is, it, is the title a threat to Rome? Are you even interested in understanding the title, the king of the Jews? Or is there a deeper, a more personal, a more spiritual meaning to the word? Is Pilate content or satisfied even with the accusation? With one question, Jesus has turned the tables and now Pilate is on trial and he doesn't like it. It's been my experience being the pastor of a church that's what happens almost every Sunday. People come here, believers and unbelievers alike. They come through the door, they walk through, they sit down on a chair that's very much like the chair that you're sitting in. And they hear the reports of the history and the mystery. Who is this Jesus? 
Is He really the King? Did He really come from heaven? Did He say what He said that He said? And are His claims true? And then all of a sudden people don't like it because now they're faced with that ever-present reality of what will I do with Jesus? You know, it's interesting. You only have to ask one simple question and you can shake a person's worldview and there will be an explosion of words if you ask the simple question. Tell me what you believe about Jesus. I've been a pastor for a very long time and I've asked literally thousands of people that question. Tell me what you believe about Jesus. You know what no one has ever said to me? No one. Ever. No one has ever said to me, I don't know and I don't care. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone believes something about Jesus, at least that he was real or that he wasn't real, that he's a myth or a legend, that he's an ascended master like Buddha or Krishna that he's an avatar who came into this dimension. There have been weird things and wild things and crazy things said about Jesus. Everybody has an opinion about him. And everybody wants to share it. Let them. You don't always have to chop a person to death with the sword of truth. The sword can point the way. But clearly, Pilate's in trouble. And he says in verse 35, And am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Can you hear the scorn and the question? The vitriol? Pilate's question unleashes a deep-seated resentment, a bitter prejudice, an undisguised animosity towards his Jewish charges. Rome considered the Jewish people and the ancient religion of Judaism coming from antiquity. And because it came from antiquity, they would honor it and they would value it. But make no mistake about it, Rome isn't Jerusalem, and Jerusalem isn't Rome, and the answer is the answer of a Roman. He's a Roman through and through. Pilate is the son-in-law of Caesar. He is the commander of the legions. He is the legal representative of the empire to keep the world in check. And he asks the question, why are your own people so bitterly opposed to you? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Even as Pilate speaks the words, why is it that these people hate you so much? Why is it that you are such a threat to them? You can almost see the wheels begin to turn in Pilate's mind. Why indeed do the religious leaders hate this man? Why indeed do the religious leaders want this man dead? Why indeed does Annas and Caiaphas desire this man? Why is he such a threat to them? Jews had no problem hiding their hatred of Rome. As a matter of fact, any idiot 
who wanted a rebellion. Any jerk who was offering an insurrection, no matter how wild his claims, no matter how weird he was, they would latch on to him. By the way, within a generation, there would be a man named Simon Bar Kokhba who would be perceived as being a Messiah. And literally, the religious leadership would gather around him in order to throw off the yoke of oppression. And it would result in the massacre of close to a million Jews and the leveling of the temple and a scattering throughout the Mediterranean. It didn't matter. Their thirst for independence was great. And Pilate, since the religious leaders were up to something, to use Pilate in such a monstrous game to realize their own ends, he understood something. What had generated such malice, such hatred, that the religious leaders were willing to compromise their own deeply held convictions about law and about justice, in order to kill this man. The question is supposed to upset you. But it's supposed to do something else. It's supposed to cause you to ask and answer the question for yourself. What is it about Jesus that you would be willing to ignore him? Turn him in. Make him go away. So that you don't have to think about him anymore. In verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. This verse has been erroneously been taken to mean that Christ was disavowing that his kingdom would be established on the earth, but nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus will come bodily, physically. He will return to the planet. He will occupy the throne of his father, David. Jesus communicates the fact that his kingdom isn't welcome and it isn't wanted. Do you understand what's happening? Jesus is in effect saying, I am not a welcome king. And I am not a wanted king. I, the Bible says at the opening chapter in John's gospel, he came into his own and his own received him not. They wouldn't welcome him and they didn't want him. And the reason why he's not welcome and the reason why he is not wanted is because he does not promise the religious leaders that he will throw off the yoke of oppression. He does not promise them that he will break the chains of the empire and that Jerusalem can be a free and independent state. Pilate may think that the peasant is delusional. That he is a man with some invisible army. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he's not as helpless as you might think. By the way, remember what we've learned so far? Was Jesus in charge of the circumstances surrounding his arrest? Is Jesus in charge of the circumstances surrounding his trial? 
Is Jesus in charge even of his own death and the manner of his death? The answer is yes. And if Jesus wanted to send a hundred angels, forget that. Twenty angels, forget that. One angel. One angel from heaven. If Jesus decided to send one angel from heaven, would every Roman soldier in Jerusalem be destroyed? The answer is yes. Would every soldier in the entire Roman Empire be destroyed? Yes. Does Jesus have one one angel who could literally kill every single human being on the planet Earth? The answer is yes. He has servants. He has legions. When I read this, I thought again about the report of the Chiliarchos. Remember the commander who arrests Jesus in the garden and he talks about the supernatural pulse that knocks the combined joint task force into the dirt and it's between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the morning and a piece of paper is now pressed into his hand by his wife, the the granddaughter of the emperor and she reads the message, be careful what you do with this guy because I've just been given a dream. Verse 37, Pilate therefore says to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. This passage is perhaps the oldest and the most attested verse in all of the Bible. Just think if you knew nothing else about Jesus, but you knew that he stood before a man named Pilate. He was accused of being a king. He affirms the fact that he is a king. And then he declares his reality for being on this earth. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I've come into the world. That you should bear witness. That I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He doesn't deny his kingly status. But Jesus' credentials are genial. He is a king by birth and it is spiritual. He won't establish the kingdom by overthrowing the existing kingdom by force. And the kingdom of Jesus draws its power from another dimension. A dimension that you can't see or touch or taste or feel or invade. And the kingdom of Jesus doesn't depend on earthly power or earthly armies. And as for the Jewish leaders, he's voluntarily surrendered. In a simple generation, the future religious leaders will gladly embrace a new Messiah with no credentials and enter into a protracted war with Judea. But this one is the one that they don't want. They hate him. Because he's a meek Messiah. Because he comes not to deliver you from your social or economic circumstances, but to deliver you from your sin. And so they reject him. And they reject his claims. 
they reject his claims to telling the truth. But listen carefully to what he says about himself. I came to bear witness to the truth. Jesus moves the conversation into the arena of truth. As the Son of Man, he's born the King of the Jews, according to Matthew chapter 2. As the Son of God, he comes from another world, from another dimension, from another form of existence to bear witness to the truth. And I want you to think for just a moment. He is the embodiment of truth. Everyone who loves the truth and recognizes the truth will recognize Jesus. This is what Bible teachers call the magic moment. Can you imagine having a magic moment where Jesus shows up? He shows up and you hear his claims and you hear the gospel. I told you about my magic moment many times. When as a teenager in high school, someone asked me a very simple question, are you a Christian? And I said, of course I am. I'm a Catholic. And a voice whispered in my heart, no, you're not. And you're going to hell. And I went, what? Yeah. You don't have a right relationship with me and you don't know anything about me. And I heard the gospel. I heard someone preach and teach from John chapter 11 about Jesus being the resurrection and the life and he that believes in him even if he were dead yet shall he live and a voice whispered inside my heart that if Jesus can bring a dead person back to life I wonder if he can bring a dead heart back to life and I didn't know about history about philosophy and theology. But it was a magic moment for me. I thought that if Jesus could bring a dead man back to life, that he might be able to bring me back to life. The philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer wrote, All truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's violently opposed. And third, it's accepted as being self-evident. Jesus is ridiculed. Jesus is opposed. And then Jesus comes back to life. Things are getting way too close for comfort for Pilate. He doesn't want to deal with the philosophical implications of who Jesus may or may not be. And in verse 38, Pilate says, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and he said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Pilate's question is brash. What is truth? The English call this question cheeky. My grandma would call this question, why are you being a smart aleck with me? You can imagine who she was talking to. It would be me. There's certain statements that you don't say to your grandma. Pilate asks the question, what is truth? But he doesn't stick around long enough to find the answer. Because he doesn't care about the magic moment. The world's philosophies and religions and scientific communities have debated the question long and hard. J. Grant Howard said, truth is not limited to the scriptures, but it is limited by the scriptures. Ooh, that's true. 
When I was growing up, truth drifted from something that corresponds to reality to something unclear and uncertain relative to culture and circumstances. Our culture seems to have embraced Nietzsche's mantra, there are no eternal facts and there are no absolute truths. But Nietzsche is wrong. And his statement is wrong. Because there are eternal facts. The creed that you learned as a child, Jesus was born of a virgin. That he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Crucified died and was buried and rose from the dead is rooted in history and rooted in reality. When he says, I find no fault in him, the word fault is atia. It means cause or reason. It's a legal word. And it's used in the legal sense. What Pilate is clearly saying, he's rendering a verdict of not guilty. In other words, the charges cannot be sustained. In other words, there is no basis for the charge. And this is incredible. How do you go to a court? How are you found not guilty? And then you stay and receive an execution. How does that happen? If you've ever watched TV and the, and the, and the judge says not guilty, what always happens? The prisoner is free to go. So how does this happen? Whatever else Jesus was, Pilate knew that he was no threat to Rome. He violated no Roman law as Pilate understood the law. But Pilate is weak. And he wants to avoid an unnecessary conflict with the Jewish leaders because the moment that he says, I find no fault in him at all, it's as if a politician has said to a group of American citizens, the government will be the best provider of health care for you. What? roll back in their head. Fire and brimstone gets breathed out of their mouth. Hands start sweating. The heart starts pumping. It's as if their countenance is caught on fire. You would think it's a bunch of solid citizens debating health care reform. That's exactly what Pilate saw. A nasty storm breaks out. And he realizes something. These people aren't going to stand for a not guilty verdict. And in verse 39 it says, But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He's still rubbing it in. And he's playing a dangerous game. You know what Pilate is doing? He's betting on the common decency and the goodness of ordinary citizens to be able to tell the difference between a person who is guilty and a person who is innocent. And we'll have to talk about that more later. But clearly, they're not able to make the good choice. It isn't always easy to tell people that Jesus is king and a, a day of judgment will, will come. 
There was a conversation overheard by an old farmer and the new pastor of a rural church. And this pastor says to the farmer, do you belong to the Christian family? And the farmer said, no, the Christian family lives two farms down. And the pastor says, no, 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 no. I mean, are you lost? Lost? I've lived here for 35 years. No, no. I mean, are you ready for the judgment day? When is it, said the farmer? It could be today or tomorrow. Well, the farmer said, when you find out for sure, uh, let me know, because I know my wife will want to attend both days. How do you talk to someone who doesn't want to hear? Once when Calvin Coolidge was vice president of the United States and he was presiding over the Senate, a terrible fight, a bitter exchange took place on the Senate floor. And two senators got hot and bothered, tempers flared, and they were yelling and screaming at each other until finally one senator said to the other senator, Go to hell! The offended senator stormed from his seat, marched up the aisle, right in front of Mr. Coolidge, who was silently leafing through a, a book. And he said, Mr. President, did you hear what he said to me? And Coolidge went. No. There's nothing in the rule book that says you have to go. That's exactly how I feel. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to go. You can experience forgiveness and freedom and hope. You know, Barabbas is the only person who can literally say, Jesus physically took my place. And the cross that was intended for me, he died on that cross. But each and every one of you can spiritually make that claim. The cross that was intended for the criminal, that was intended for you, became his throne. So that you could experience hope and forgiveness and life and freedom. But we'll have a whole lot more to say about that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you that our faith isn't simply rooted in mystery. And clearly it's not superstition or fiction. But our faith is rooted in reality and in history. And that every generation that has ever said that Jesus was born of a virgin. That he suffered under Pontius Pilate. That he was crucified. And buried. And rose from the dead. Are repeating words. That aren't just simply wishful thinking. But rooted in history. Rooted in reality. Connected to truth. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every person here. That they would be connected 
to reality. Connected to Jesus. Connected to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.